The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, good evening, everyone. For those of you who don't know, my name is James Class. I noticed that Pastor Doug didn't make the same comment about me because I also came to Maranatha about 22 years ago. Uh, look a little different. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Uh, being able to fill in for Pastor Daniel is a huge honor and blessing, privilege, and so thankful for Maranatha. It's been a second home to me for a number of years, and so I'm excited to be able to come and to get into God's Word with you tonight. I just recently returned from Africa. I was there for a couple of weeks. I was in Uganda and South Sudan. I think many of you are familiar with far-reaching ministries and West Bentley, and so that's who we were there with. Uh, there was an amazing team that God brought together, all these pastors that got to go and minister. There was a pastor's conference in Uganda that we were there the better part of a week for. Uh, there was the chaplains in South Sudan and being able to speak to them. And it was just a huge honor and privilege. And God did all of these amazing things. And so we had a fantastic time. And I want to share with you one of the reasons why I went on this trip. But before I do that, because you're probably going to judge me for it, let me give you the first two. The first two reasons why I went to Africa. Number one, God told me to go. Uh, not that I heard his audible voice, but the opportunity presented itself. I prayed about it. I talked with my wife, and it really seemed like that's where the Lord was leading. So God told me to go, number one. Uh, number two, I was thinking about the people who were there, the, the Ugandan pastors, many of whom would travel some great distances to be there and then not have a place to stay. There were so many of those pastors who ended up getting a little caught and staying at the church for several days and were there early in the morning and there late at night or thinking about the chaplains in South Sudan and facing some pressure and opposition like I can't even imagine. So to be able to go there and be a part of what God is doing and in somehow, some way minister to them, what a blessing. And so number two was the people. So to quickly recap, you have number one, God told me to go. Number two, the people. Number three, somewhere far, far distant. Number three, yeah, I was thinking to myself, maybe I'll lose a few pounds in Africa, you know? Like, there's all of these fad diets out there, the Africa diet, you know? It'll kind of jumpstart me into some healthy living. It's supposed to be 100 degrees and 95% humidity. The weather alone should shed off a few pounds. That'll be great. And then plus, you go on a mission trip, and sometimes you're eating weird things that you're not used to, so you take a couple of bites, and you do a missionary trick. It's also a little kid trick where you spread things out on your plate to make it look like you ate something, and oh, I couldn't possibly eat another bite, but really, I'm just done. Unfortunately, my little plan severely backfired because... The weather wasn't really extreme at all. It wasn't particularly hot. It wasn't particularly humid. And the food was delicious and plentiful. And I ate way too much. I think I gained weight on my Africa plan. So it really kind of backfired on me. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. I guess I'll have to lose weight the, the old school, traditional way. Schedule an appointment for some laser removal. So that's what I have to be working on. I'm really glad three of you laughed at that joke because that's all I got for the night. So if you didn't laugh... You missed your opportunity. We're going to be in Dan... You don't have to applaud that. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 if you want to open up your Bibles there. Daniel chapter 9. 
Why don't we come before the Lord together and just ask him to speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this night, this opportunity that we have to gather here together and meet with you and worship you. What an incredible time it's already been just sitting in your presence and declaring that you are good, that you are worthy of all of our praise, of all of our worship. And as we come to the word, we pray that you would speak. We pray that your word would go out with power and authority and boldness, that it would accomplish all that you desire it to. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 9. I love the book of Daniel. It's powerful. There's all of this action. There's all of this adventure. There's prophecy and vision and angels and dreams and interpretations. And there's so much packed into this small little book of Daniel. Of course, if you remember, the book of Daniel begins with Jerusalem falling to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. We know from history that that actually came in a series of attacks. We think that Daniel was taken captive under that first attack that came from Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC. Jerusalem would ultimately fall somewhere around 585, 584. The city would be completely destroyed. The walls broken down, the temple leveled. They carry away all of the precious elements out of the temple. They bring captives back to Babylon. Jerusalem is completely judged and destroyed. Something that God allowed to happen because the people had fallen into sin, had fallen into idolatry. God was so gracious, he was so patient, and time and time again, he would send the prophets and he would warn them of coming judgment. And then every once in a while, a godly king would come along in Judah and he would lead the nation into repentance and revival, but it would usually be short-lived. Within a generation or two, they're back doing the very same things, falling into idolatry, which meant child sacrifice, it meant sexual perversion, it meant violence and immorality, rebellion against God, and though he's gracious and though he's patient, there comes a point when God says, enough is enough. And he has to bring judgment. He has to bring correction. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's not only true for the nation of Israel. That's true in each and every one of our lives. If you know the Lord, if you've committed your heart to him and you're in Christ and you're a follower of Jesus but you fall away, you're a prodigal, you allow some things into your life that really shouldn't be, you're basically inviting correction, inviting discipline, because God loves you too much to let you slip between his fingers, and so he's gonna reach out, he's gonna get your attention. That's exactly how the book of Daniel begins. Now, we don't know for sure how young Daniel was. We know that he was a young man, the Bible tells us that, and we could sort of piece some things together from his whole life. Some scholars speculate that Daniel could have been as young as 13 years old when he was taken captive to Babylon. I don't know if you have a 13-year-old at home, a son or a daughter, maybe a grandson, a granddaughter, but the next time you see them, I want you to think about Daniel. And I want you to think, what if this person was taken captive? Their city destroyed. What happened to Daniel's parents? We don't know. Perhaps they were killed. At the very least, Daniel knows he's never gonna see them again. He's brought into Babylon, this world-dominating empire of his day. Its walls and its gates alone were impressive and massive and beautiful. And here Daniel is marched in, paraded in as a captive 
to this huge nation. They were advanced in science and technology. It was home of the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And here's Daniel being brought in and perhaps wondering, what's going to happen to me? What are they going to do? Am I going to be tortured? Am I going to be killed? Am I going to be put into prison? But of course, Daniel was chosen because he was from one of the very best families in Israel. He he was educated. He was good looking, the Bible says. But he was also chosen because he was very young and Babylon believed that they could brainwash him into becoming Babylonian. Daniel means God is my judge. They changed his name to Belteshazzar, the prince of Bel. They, they tried to give a Babylonian twist to Daniel's identity and they, they put him through this rigorous training and education, teaching him all of the ways of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans to serve there in the king's court. And could you imagine the tremendous pressure that Daniel must have been under, this pressure to stay quiet, this pressure to not raise any objections, just keep your head down, do whatever they're telling you to do. If you have to compromise, I'm sure the Lord will understand this incredible pressure to conform to what was going on all around him. And yet we read in Daniel chapter one, verse eight, that he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Right from the very beginning, he determines, he decides, no, I am not going to compromise. I am not going to lower my standard. I understand that it could mean bodily harm. I understand that I could be putting myself in a very difficult situation, but I am not going to compromise my relationship with God, though none go with me, Daniel says. I'm still going to follow after the Lord, and I refuse to compromise. I refuse to lower my standards, and how the world so desperately needs Christians like that. How this world so desperately needs people who aren't going to bow down to the pressure, who aren't going to bow down to the conformity, who aren't going to give in to temptation. How easy it is to make excuses. And to justify, well, you don't understand the whole story, how this world so desperately needs people who aren't going to compromise God's word, who aren't going to compromise in their relationship with the Lord. And in the days that we're living in, I'm convinced, who is God going to use in a powerful way, in a dramatic way? I don't think it's going to require some great gift. I don't think it's going to require some great talent or anointing. I'm not knocking those things. I'm thankful for those things. But I think all God is really looking for is someone who has an undivided heart. Someone who says, you know what, I want to follow after God. I'm going to put him first and I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to bow down. Daniel becomes a good example of that. He serves the Lord faithfully. He's used in two different kingdoms, first in Babylon. Eventually, Babylon falls to the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel serves in that kingdom as well. And as we come to Daniel chapter 9... He's now been in Babylon for close to 70 years. And now this story is going to continue here in verse 1 of Daniel 9. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. 
Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Again, now Daniel, having been in Babylon for nearly 70 years, it says that he is reading through the prophet Jeremiah. We know in Jeremiah chapter 25, as well as Jeremiah chapter 29, specifically this captivity is mentioned as being 70 years long. In other words, from God's perspective, as Judah is judged and then carried away captive to Babylon, that was never supposed to be permanent. He wasn't casting off his people. He wasn't done with them. This was a temporary period of time that was intended to bring correction, discipline, repentance, ultimately bringing the people back into the land. And so here is Daniel with the scroll of Jeremiah, and he's reading through, and he's discovering that this was going to be for a period of 70 years. And one of the things I love about that is here is Daniel. He's a prophet. He's given all kinds of incredible visions and dreams and interpretations of dreams. One time back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he called all of his wise men, and he said, I want you to give the interpretation. And they all said, okay, great, tell us the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar was like, nah, I'm on to you guys. I think you're pulling one over on me. You tell me the dream, and that's how I'll know that you're really giving me the right interpretation. And they said, are you crazy? Nobody can do that. That's unheard of it. Well, it's exactly what Daniel did. God gave Daniel the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He reveals that to him and then gives the interpretation. Just extraordinary life. And God used him in some powerful ways. We're going to find out that Daniel spoke face to face with angels. And with all of the extraordinary giftings and talents and ways that God used him, How did Daniel find out that they were going to be in Babylon for 70 years? He found out the same way that you and I would find out. He found out by reading his Bible. He had a scroll of Jeremiah. And can you imagine? He's got the whole thing unrolled. And here's Daniel meticulously going through. He's in his mid-80s at this point. And so I don't know if he's got some sort of reading glasses out, maybe a pen and paper, and he's making notations as he's making his way through a scroll of Jeremiah and eventually gets to chapter 25, eventually gets to chapter 29, and he reads through it and discovers this period of captivity is only going to be for 70 years, and then God's going to bring us back home. Daniel discovers it the same way that you and I would by studying the Word of God and how that needs to be a priority in our life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, to study, to show yourself approved unto God. The new King James says, be diligent. I kind of like the way the old King James says it. Study, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study. Be diligent in these things. We need to be reading over the Word of God, studying the Word of God, meditating on it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You could translate that to say that all Scripture is God-breathed. God has breathed on all Scripture. And then 2 Timothy 3, 16 goes on to say, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, lacking nothing. 
that we have everything that we need. It's given to us in the word of God. God has breathed on it. And as Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is alive and it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. When we're reading through our Bible, it's not like any other book. Uh, the Word of God, it can jump off of the page. The, the Word of God, we can be reading through it at times and be scratching our head and wondering what does this mean and what is the significance. It could be a month later. It could be a year later where the Holy Spirit will bring that verse to your memory and you'll think, wow. Lord, that's so amazing. You're so good. It could be a passage that you're reading for the very first time. It could be a passage that you've read a hundred times before. And you've maybe heard three or four great Bible studies on it, but you could be reading through it. And it's like the very first time because God opens your eyes to his truth and to his love and, and perhaps applies it to you in such a specific way. And you come under the realization that not only is this the word of God, but he is aware that I'm reading it and he's speaking to me and he's communicating to me. The God who created the heavens and the earth, he knows my name and he's meeting with me and he's speaking with me. Oh, there is nothing like it. If you knew that there was buried treasure in your backyard, if you knew that there was gold and diamonds and jewels and precious stones, you knew it was there, what would your backyard look like? I know mine would be torn up upside down and sideways. I'd have tractors back there. I'd buy equipment and sift through the dirt, do whatever I had to do to make sure I recovered every last diamond, every last nugget of gold. What should our Bibles look like? Our Bibles possess buried treasure. Our Bibles, it's better than jewels. It's better than diamonds. It's better than gold. We should be reading through it. We should be studying it. We should meditate on it. It should be such an aspect of our everyday life. This was true for Daniel. He had all of the gifting. He had all of the anointing. He had all of the talent. And yet he was studying. He was reading through a scroll of Jeremiah and God began to speak to him and reveal these things to him, which of course eventually is going to lead him to prayer, to fasting and sackcloth and ashes and prayer and supplication. He comes before the Lord as, as he receives this revelation from God through his word that it drives him to prayer. And it's going to also be this motivation in the way that he prays. Now, the prayer is recorded for us from verses 4 all the way down to verse 19. If I had another hour with you, we could read the whole prayer together. Uh, there's usually one person in the back who's like, do it. We don't have anywhere to go. For your sake, I'll pretend that you do have somewhere to be tonight. We'll finish at the regular time. I would encourage you, read through this prayer on your own. The prayer of Daniel, verse 4 all the way down to verse 19, it's so powerful, it's so good. I just want to highlight a few things to you. The first thing that I notice about this prayer there in verse 4, it says, I prayed to the Lord my God. Now, you might notice in your Bibles that, that the word Lord, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, Jehovah, this covenant name of God. Now, that's significant because in the book of Daniel, you will never find him using that word. 
You're never going to see all caps for Lord, speaking of Yahweh, speaking of Jehovah. You'll never find it in any other chapter except this one. He doesn't use it in the rest of the book. It's only in chapter 9. And here in chapter 9, he's going to use it seven times. I think that's probably significant. He's speaking to the God of Israel. He's speaking to this God who's made a covenant, an agreement. He's made promises to Israel because now he's pleading for God to remember those promises. He's pleading to God to be faithful to his people that he's entered into an agreement with. You know, I think there's something significant and powerful when we, as the people of God, we understand our identity in Christ. We understand this new covenant that we've been brought into, that he is living inside of us, changing us from the inside out, transforming us more and more into his glorious image. That because of Jesus, because of his blood that was shed, that we can boldly enter in to the throne room of God. And of course, that's contrasted in the book of Hebrews with the high priest who could only enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. And he would sort of tiptoe in to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people, concerned and worried that if there was sin in his life, he could die in the, right there in the moment. And that's contrasted now with you and I as believers in Jesus, not once a year, but any time we desire, we can boldly enter in because it's not based off of our righteousness. It's based off of his righteousness. We're covered in his blood. We're clothed in Christ and we come in and we're accepted and we're received and we can make our request known. And so Daniel, he pleads to Yahweh. He pleads to this God who had entered into a covenant with his people. Another thing that I want to point out to you through this prayer is that Daniel identifies with the people. It would have been so easy for him to sort of have the attitude that says, oh, you know, my forefathers, they really messed things up. Uh, my parents or my grandparents, oh, they made a mess of things. You know, God, I was just a young man. When I was brought to Babylon, it wasn't really my fault. It would have been so easy for him to have that attitude. But we look at this prayer. In verse 5, he says, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. In verse 6, we have not heeded the prophets. Verse 7, unto us belongs shame of face. Verse 8, to us is shame of face, for we have sinned. Verse 9, we have rebelled. Verse 10, we have not obeyed. Verse 13, we have not made prayer. Verse 14, we have not obeyed. Verse 15, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Verse 16, he says, all of this is because of our sins. Daniel puts himself right there with the people. Daniel says, no, it's not because they sinned, God, it's because we have sinned. He connects himself, he identifies with the people of God, and I think one of the reasons why he does this is Daniel isn't asking God just to do something in his own personal life. Daniel has his eyes lifted up and he's asking God to do a work on behalf of the nation. God, would you do a work on behalf of all of these people? Daniel is recognizing there's a much bigger picture at play here. As a matter of fact, Daniel is in his late 80s. He's not really thinking of the life that he still has ahead of him in Jerusalem. He's thinking about future generations. And God, this is all for your great namesake. 
This is your people. This is your holy city, Jerusalem. Your name, your reputation is on the line here. And so God, I'm asking you to do this great work. I'm asking you to do this work among all of the people that you would be glorified. And I think God is constantly calling us to lift up our eyes. God is constantly calling us to see the bigger picture to recognize that we've been saved, yes, because God loves us, because God loves you personally, but we've been saved for a purpose greater than ourselves. And that's a wonderful thing. That should be freeing. It's something we should celebrate. You know, the world is always trying to tell us it's all about you. And oh, there's a part of our flesh that certainly appeals to. There's a part of our flesh that says, oh, that sounds right. It is about my plans and my dreams and my definitions and my voice and what I choose to do. It is all about me. There's a part of our flesh that appeals to, but where does that lead? Where do we end up? How is that so bitter in the end? It's so destructive. It's not leading anywhere good. What a freeing thing it is to be a Christian and to lose yourself in Christ only to find what life is truly all about. To understand he saved us for a purpose greater than ourselves. Right from the very beginning of Peter's call, Jesus said to Peter, follow me and I will make you become a fisher of men. Right from the very beginning of his call, Jesus let Peter know, yes, I'm saving you because I love you, but I also have a plan that's so much bigger than you, so much greater. I think of the crowds who would come out to hear Jesus, the multitudes who would start to press in, and you get the distinct impression that oftentimes the disciples were kind of annoyed by this. Uh, Jesus, send them away. Don't they have anywhere to be? Don't these people have jobs? Don't they have a house of their own? Send them away, Lord. And Jesus would have to correct them because Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the multitude. He said they're like a sheep not having a shepherd. Jesus would tell the disciples, lift up your eyes. The fields are already white for harvest. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit might put upon your heart. I don't know what would come to your mind if the Lord would say to you, lift up your eyes. See the bigger picture and what's happening in your home, in your family, in your community, in your church, in your state, in your nation, in this world. I don't know what the Holy Spirit might bring to your attention. All I do know is it's such a human tendency, one that I struggle with too. We, we see our little world we see our little problems, and it becomes all-consuming. And from time to time, the Lord is so gracious, and he's so merciful, and he just says, James, lift up your eyes. Look at the harvest. Look at the bigger picture. Get your eyes off of yourself and onto the greater work that I'm doing. That's where Daniel is at. He's identifying with the people. He's asking God to move. He's asking God to work. And by the way, I don't think that this is some false humility on Daniel's part. I don't think he's confessing sin to the Lord with sort of a caveat. I don't think he's saying, oh, we have sinned. I mean, technically, God, I haven't sinned. You know, it's not like I'm really to blame. I was just a young man when I came to Babylon. I don't think it's a false humility. I think he recognizes that he's just as much a sinner as anybody else is. 
And even though we don't have any major blunder of Daniel recorded for us in Scripture, we know that he was a human being, therefore we know that he wasn't perfect, and I think Daniel understood that. We know that he has a scroll of Jeremiah, because Jeremiah 25 and 29, it mentions the 70 years. In Jeremiah 17, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. That means Daniel read that verse. That means he took some time to consider, yeah, in my heart, I know I'm just as guilty as anyone else. In my heart, I know I've sinned and I've offended God. A little bit later in the story, we're going to read it in just a moment. As a result of this prayer, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel. And Daniel says that the angel came to him right around the time of the evening sacrifice. Now that's significant. Because every day in Jerusalem, there was the morning and there was the evening sacrifice and prayers would be offered up to the Lord. And there was this understanding that they had, this picture, that our prayers are going up to the Lord and he's hearing our prayers because of this sacrifice that's being made. It's significant though for Daniel because remember, he's been in Babylon for nearly 70 years. There hasn't been a sacrifice in the temple during all of that time. And yet here, almost 70 years later, Daniel is still measuring his day by the morning and the evening sacrifice. He said, oh, the angel came right around the time of the evening sacrifice. How old was Daniel? 13, 14, 15 years old. The last time he was in Jerusalem and a sacrifice was being offered and prayers were going up before the Lord. And Daniel as a very young man. He remembered that time of day. He remembered what was going through his heart and his mind. So that almost 70 years later, he's still using it as a way to measure his day. Oh, the angel came to me right around the time of the evening sacrifice. Daniel understood why God heard his prayer. When Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord, he prayed and he went through all of these potential scenarios. And one of them was, if your people are ever taken away captive into a foreign land, if they look back towards Jerusalem, if they look back towards this temple and pray, God, would you hear from heaven? When they look back towards this place of sacrifice, God, would you hear from heaven? That's what Daniel was doing in Babylon. It's what each and every one of us can do. But we're not looking back to some temple made with hands in Jerusalem. We can look back to the cross. We can look back to that place of sacrifice. And certainly any time any scenario in life, we want to remember Jesus. We want to remember that sacrifice that was made for us. But I think especially for anybody here tonight that's been held captive. Anybody here tonight, you find yourself in the enemy's territory. Anyone here tonight, you know you've allowed some things to creep into your life and you're just sort of in this cycle. You're not really sure how to break out of it if you look back towards that place of sacrifice. If you look back towards the cross where Jesus bled and died and paid for your sin, where Jesus demonstrated his love and his power and his authority, if you look back towards the cross and you say, oh God, would you save me? Oh God, would you forgive me? Oh God, would you deliver me? He's going to hear from heaven and he's going to respond. And so that's what we see Daniel doing, crying out to the Lord, 
that he would be merciful, that he would be gracious, that he would hear his prayer and that God would do a great and mighty work. And what we really see here from Daniel is he is asking God to do what God has already declared that he wanted to do. God already said in Jeremiah 25 and 29 that it would be for 70 years. And so this whole prayer of Daniel is Daniel saying, God, this is what you said you were going to do. Now I'm praying that you will do it. Oh, and that's how we claim these promises of God. That's one of the benefits in spending time in God's word because we become aware of these promises that he's made. We become aware of the fact that, Lord, you said you'll never leave me, you'll never forsake me. God, you said that we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God, this is what you've promised in your word. And so I'm asking that this would be true in my life. I'm praying that you would fill me afresh with your spirit. I'm praying that you would give me wisdom. You, you say that you give it to all if we would just simply ask. I'm asking for wisdom. I'm asking for discernment. Lord, I'm praying that you would work in this person's life because you tell us that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And so, Lord, I'm praying that you would intervene in this person's life. Lord, that you would bind the enemy, that your Holy Spirit would be convicting them and drawing them to yourself. I know this is your will. I know this is your desire. And so like Daniel, we lay hold of those promises. And so I would encourage you to study over them and to consider those promises of the Lord and lay hold of them by prayer, asking God to do what he's already declared that he will do. Now here we get a response from this angel Gabriel to Daniel's prayer. It's in verse 20. It says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, the skill to understand and the matter and the vision that's at hand here is what remains in Daniel chapter 9 and this prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks, and it's just fascinating and incredible a very detailed, a very specific prophecy of specifically when the Messiah would come, the very day that he would enter into Jerusalem, that the Messiah would be cut off violently, that he would be killed, but not for himself, that Rome is going to destroy the city. Eventually, the last seven-year period, the Antichrist is going to establish this covenant. He's going to be revealed in the middle of it. And at the very end, there's a finality to these things, these 70 weeks these 77s have been determined upon your people, the Jewish people, upon your holy city, Jerusalem. And God gives Daniel this sweeping scope of all that he has planned right until his kingdom returns to earth. And I love that because Daniel, he's just reading, oh, we're going to be here 70 years. It's almost been 70 years. I guess it's time to come home. And the answer to his prayer, it's so much bigger it's so much greater than anything Daniel had in mind. 
Here's seven times he refers to him as Yahweh. Hey, you know how we've entered into this covenant, Lord? You know how you've made promises to us? And God's response to Daniel, it's just so much bigger, so much greater, and I'm so thankful that that's the way the Lord so often works in our life. I'm never, it never ceases to amaze me how much God will do with so very little. We'll come to him and, and we're not perfect. We'll come to him and we'll have struggles and we'll have fears and we'll have doubts. He'll say, cast the net on that side. And we'll be like, oh, we've been fishing all night and we haven't caught anything. And I would like to point out, we're the fishermen <laughs> You're the carpenter, but okay, you say to throw the net out, I guess we will. He would have been totally just and then skunking them. You know, okay, you know what? If that's going to be your attitude, you don't get anything. But what happens? Their nets are bursting with the catch. Andrew comes back with a little boy who had a small little lunch. And he says, oh, this little kid is the only one who has any food. You know, what's that going to be among so many people? Jesus says, Perfect just enough, and he breaks it and multiplies it and feeds the crowds that are there. It never ceases to amaze me how much God will do with so very little. Daniel is thinking, all right, in the next few years, probably we're gonna get to return, and God gives him this huge, incredible prophecy. But I want you to consider this as we're getting ready to close our time here tonight. The angel Gabriel, he comes to Daniel, and he says, the moment you started to pray, a command went out in heaven for me to come. I want you to think about that. The moment you started to pray, a command went out in heaven for me to come. That's powerful. Now, in the very next chapter, in chapter 10, there Daniel is going to be praying for three weeks that time it takes three weeks for the angel to show up. And when the angel does come, he says, oh, as soon as you started praying, I needed to come to you. But the prince of Persia withstood me for 21 days. And then Michael, the archangel, he showed up and helped me out. And now I'm here. And then the Bible just casually moves on as if we don't have one million questions. Like, what was that all about? What do you mean the prince of Persia? The prince of Persia was fighting with an angel? Well, that doesn't sound like any earthly king. That sounds like there was some demonic, angelic battle that was going on. And eventually Michael, this strong and mighty angel, comes and he helps him out. And okay, now Daniel, here I am. And while I think we have to be so careful about building some gigantic doctrine around a few obscure verses, I think it is fair to say that oftentimes we underestimate and we undervalue the power of prayer. A command went out from heaven, Gabriel says. The moment you started to pray, a command went out in heaven. I think about chapter 10 and how this battle was going on for three weeks. And it says that Daniel was praying that entire time. What if he stopped at one week? What if he stopped at two weeks? We could only speculate as to what would have happened, but there was a spiritual war. There was a spiritual battle going on. It could very well be that it might be heaven before we fully recognize and realize just how powerful prayer is and what's going on in the angelic realm, what's going on spiritually behind the scenes when we come to our heavenly father and we pray and we're making supplication and we're asking him to move. I think we might be amazed 
at the spiritual battle that can be going on as we're coming before the Lord in prayer. But I think what I love most of all about this story is Gabriel comes to Daniel and he says, well, the moment that you started to pray, a command went out from heaven for me to come. And do you see the reason that Gabriel gives to Daniel? He says, because you're greatly beloved of the Lord. That's why I came so quickly. That's why this command went out. Daniel, because you're greatly beloved of the Lord. And what I hope, what I pray, that each one of you here, myself included, that we would understand from this night, from this study, you are greatly beloved of the Lord. God loves you more than you can even fully wrap your mind around. If you're here tonight and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I know God loves you because he sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to live a perfect life so that he could be a substitute for you, that he could step into the punishment that you deserve. Then he paid it all for it on the cross. He died in your place. He rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death. There's life in his name. And really, it doesn't matter how we think we stack up against one another. So often, that's how we draw our conclusions in terms of who's righteous and who's not. Daniel was smart enough to realize it doesn't matter how I compare to other people. It matters where I stand before the one true and living God. You know, in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the great white throne judgment, a judgment, believe me, none of us here want to be at because it's gonna be a judgment of our sin. It's gonna be a judgment where an account is given and there's going to be swift and immediate consequences and judgment that comes. But in Revelation, it tells us that at the great white throne judgment, that the sky and the earth are gonna vanish. They're gonna disappear. And there's gonna be absolutely nowhere to hide. There's gonna be absolutely nowhere to run. And we're gonna stand guilty as an account is written and as declared, we don't want to be a part of that judgment. Daniel was smart enough to realize, no, it's not who I compare to on this earth. It's where do I stand in front of the one true and living God who is holy, who is perfect. And God loved you enough that you wouldn't have to stand in that place if you would put your faith and trust in him. But for each and every one of us here who know that love and we've received what Jesus did on the cross then Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 says that we have been accepted into the beloved. First uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. We've been accepted into his family. He loves us so much. If, if there could be any greater demonstration than the cross, we think of John chapter 17. Do you know that Jesus prayed for you? He prayed for the disciples who were there with him, but he also prayed for all believers who would come to faith as a result of their testimony. And in John 17, Jesus praying to the Father, he says, you have loved them as you've loved me. According to Jesus, if you're a child of God, God the Father loves you like he loves his own son. And so when you come before him and you pray, when you come before him and you say, okay, like Daniel, I don't want to compromise. 
I don't want to bow down to this world and to temptation. I don't want to be held captive in Babylon. I want to look back to the cross. I want to look back to that place where a sacrifice was made on my behalf. God, I want to claim your promises. I want to lift up my eyes. I want to see the bigger picture. Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? Would you use me for your kingdom and for your glory? He looks at you and he says, you are greatly loved. And when you pray and you come before him in all sincerity, commands are going out from heaven. Commands are going out from his very presence. And he's ready to help. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to redeem. He's ready to restore. He's ready to move and to work in ways that we couldn't even imagine. And he's so faithful. He's so gracious to meet us right where we're at. And it's my prayer that he meets you right where you're at tonight. Let's come before him. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence here in this place. And I just want to lift up each person to you, God. You know exactly what's going on in their life. Lord, you know that if there's even one here that's never put their faith and trust in you, I pray that tonight they would stop running. That tonight they would declare their trust in you. That you would do a work in them, Lord. That they would be born again into your family. That they would receive all that you've done for them, all that you accomplished on the cross. Lord, that you would forgive their sin. That you would fill them with your spirit. That you would come into their life and make them new. Lord, I pray that if there's any here tonight who feel that they're being held captive by the enemy, they know you and they love you, but they've wandered away. Lord, I pray that tonight they would be able to look back to the cross, look back to the place, Jesus, where your blood was shed. Lord, that you would call them home, that you would wash over them and cleanse them and renew them. For all of us, God, we pray that you would lift up our eyes. For all of us, we pray that you would help us see the bigger picture, what's going on in our homes and our families and our communities, Lord, in this world. Help us to see the way that you see. Use us for your kingdom and for your glory. We love you. We praise you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.